0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Be Seen. I'm Emily, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined with Christine, hi, the other podcast host. If you're new here, Be Seen is the Civil and Environmental Engineering podcast at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. Our hope is that the podcast gives listeners insight on our community and the innovative research happening in the department.
1: Today we are joined by two guests. The first is Dr. Lucio Soibelman, a professor and the previous chair of the department. His research is in the modeling and analysis of data for user-centered built environments with the intent of increasing user satisfaction. Our second guest is Dr. Maida Chen, one of his recently graduated doctoral students. Dr. Chen speaks on his dissertation, which was focused on building virtual environment simulations and how that work has stemmed to what he is working on now. Their discussion today focuses on the applications of computational methodologies in the field of civil engineering in addition to the group dynamic of the Innovation in Integrated Informatics Lab, iLab. Enjoy!
2: So my name is Lucia Soibelman. I'm a professor here at USC at the Civil Environmental Engineering Department. My story is uh, I am originally from Brazil, I came from a family of uh, father, is civil engineer, mom, civil engineer and architect, three other sisters that are civil engineers, so civil engineering has been uh, my life. Uh, Sunday brunch in my family was to talk about bricks and mortar. Uh, we never never traveled to Disney, we travel to visit construction sites, so... Uh, when I graduated in Brazil uh, in civil engineering, I got my master's there and then I had a construction company for several years, always with the feeling that things could be done better and someone would could help me to find the answers that I had. So this is when I decided to come to the US to get my PhD, I came to MIT got my PhD at MIT, and then right after I was a professor at uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Then I moved to Carnegie Mellon, and I came to USC in 2012 as the department chair, that I was a department chair here from 2012 until last year. So my interest, it's really from what I saw during my uh, part of my life that I came from industry, and it's driven by the things that I saw that were missing construction. At the same time, I did my PhD at MIT that had not a lot of interest in traditional construction. I ended up doing my PhD much more in the computer science area in what you call civil engineering systems. Sensors, smart infrastructure, cameras, drones, and all those kinds of things are driving my research in a way, can we design? Build and operate buildings, bridges, highways, dams, any infrastructure using a more data-driven approach. So now let me introduce one of my former PhD students, Maida Chen. And Maida, go ahead and introduce yourself.
3: So my name is Maida Chen. I originally come from China. I did my undergrad here in the United States from the University of Toledo. Then I joined USC for my first master's degree in construction management around uh, 2012. After I graduated from the master, I pursued my PhD starting from 2014 until 2020. I, I finished my PhD as well as getting a master from computer science. And I'm currently working at uh, USC Institute for Creative Technology, working very similar stuff as my PhD work as well as I'm teaching a course here at the civil department for undergrad students. So I came from a family very similar to Dr. Soberman. Uh, My parents are both civil engineers. I was just hearing their discussions about concrete and everything at the dinner. So at that time, I didn't know what concrete is. But after I started my study at college, I understand what they are talking about. So I have a
2: question for you, Meita. Why a Ph.D.? how you decided from master's to continue to do a PhD?
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess the question more from undergrad, why I want to start with a master at that time. So after I graduated with my undergrad degree, I still feels like I I didn't really learn much. And I still feel like there are a lot of other things I could learn. So I decided to do a master at that time. Then I did my master. Uh, Within two years, I finished my master. I still feel like it's not enough. I still feel like I I still didn't learn much from my master. Then I think maybe once I do a PhD, I I can feel satisfied with what I learned. So I started my PhD and at the end, yes, I did learn a lot from there.
2: So my next question to you is not just why a PhD, but why USC and how you select advisor, how you select the university. What was going to your mind, even for the masters? What was the criteria that you used for those selections, selecting receive first for masters, and then staying here for a PhD? You are extremely bright. You could have gone to any school that you wanted.
3: Yes, when I selected my master, I was advised by my undergrad advisors. I, I had a couple of offers from different universities, like Columbia, USC, and others. So my advisor was telling me that USC could be one of the leading institutes for this program. And there are a lot of uh, opportunities there. The alumni there are really nice. You will have a lot of connections there at the end, uh, studying at USC. So I I took his advice and started my master's here at USC. But when I was doing my master's degree here, I actually started to planning for my PhD during my master's degree. Um, I, I joined the lab. At the first year of my master here, I already started work with the PhD students here. I, I try to understand what they are trying to do on their research. And I feel like uh, it's, it's quite interesting and there could be a good path going forward if I'm doing PhD and, uh, you know, similar work as they are doing. So I decided to stay in the lab and pursue my PhD here.
2: And the next question that is thinking about long-term planning when someone is deciding to be a civil engineer and to move for a master's and go for a PhD, what is life after PhD? So uh, why did you decide to go to a lab while several of your colleagues decided to be professors in other universities? Some went to industry. So what do you think that makes uh, some students drive their decisions after the PhD?
3: So I guess it's all about the opportunity that we will have at the end of the PhD. I guess some of my colleagues applied for professor position. They may want to... I'm not the person that uh, like the very under-pressured life. I know professors are under pressures, um, especially when they are trying to get a tenure. But I want to have a more chilled life, I guess, after my PhD. So I decided to do the research at the institute instead of pursuing as a professor at other universities. At the same time, I think uh, what I did in my PhD was not fully completed, and I'm still working on the same project and even expanded project currently at the institute. So I think it was a very good opportunity to, to further investigate the problem I was investigating and you know, getting more results and enjoy a little bit more time on those projects at the end.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the life as a PhD student? You said that you don't like pressure. But yeah, there's a lot uh, of pressure definitely. as a PhD
3: student. <laughs> definitely, so as a PhD student for the first year, it was definitely not what I was expected because the undergrad studies, there are a lot of credits you need to take, but it's pretty easy and you will have uh, tons of free time the coursework is extremely easy. It's, you don't really need to spend much effort on there. You can get an A. And similar for the master degrees, again, it's super, super easy. I thought the PhD gonna be something like that, but just a little bit harder uh, because I need to do some research, but it was nothing like what I imagined. Uh, for the first and the second year of my PhD, it was very frustrating. There was a lot of pressure because I need to define my research topic and getting all the knowledge that I needed to do the research because uh, Dr. Soberman is working on a lot of computer-related problems and I don't have any computer science background. So at the first two years, I have to get a master's degree from computer science without having a undergrad degree in computer science. So that was uh, really tough. And at the same time, need to define my thesis, define my research topic, and started to do some research myself. So putting all of those together for the first two years, it was extremely hard. It was very frustrating. But afterwards, around the third year, I think life becomes much, much easier after we have the research topic developed. And also I have some experience on, on doing the research that I'm doing. So afterwards, it, life becomes easier and easier until I graduate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I was wondering about all those candidates that was applying at the year that I was applying. How did you actually selecting those candidates? What you see from different people there? <laughs>
2: That's extremely difficult. Uh, Can you imagine that you receive hundreds of applicants from all over the world? So you have students from a small university in China. They are the best student in their class. And then I have a student from Berkeley that's not the top, but a good student in Berkeley. How you rank them, how you compare them. It is extremely difficult for faculty. It's even more difficult for younger faculty because they really get lost when they are trying to admit PhD students. Uh, obviously, that exams that these students take, like GREs and TOEFLs, even those you cannot really compare because there are cultures, some countries, like you know, in China, that people prepare one year for the GRE. They take classes for the GRE, so they do it very well. There are other countries like Latin America, whole Latin America, that the students get a pen and go to take the GRE the first time that they're looking the questions. And this is the way that it should be. The GRE should be teaching what you know know how much you prepared for the test. So even that you cannot compare. So I personally rely many times on my network of friends, being more senior, having such a large number of former students that are professors in universities like Tsinghua in China, Cambridge in England, Carnegie Mellon, uh, University of Washington, Texas, Austin, Virginia Tech. So many of my students they send their top stars to me. That's one way. Other way is uh, their professors are friends from committees, from conferences that I know them well. They send good students to me. So it's all about reference and people that know me, knowing what it's a good match for me. In your case, it's much easier because you're already a master's student here. So you're already supporting our research lab. So i already had observed your working ethic, your competence, so it was much easier for me to understand that you would fit my research team. And it's not about intelligence. And this is the problem. As you said, undergrad, it's easy. It's easy for you, not for everyone because you're very bright. But the undergrad, it's a process where the professor gives you a chapter in the book, you read the chapter in the book. If you're intelligent, you understand that thing and you regurgitate back in the exam, okay? There is not a lot of critical thinking, the majority of the undergrad programs in the country, in the world. In the PhD, it's exactly the opposite. It's uh, I don't want you to reading a paper from someone and regurgitating it back to me. I want you to critical think what are the gaps, what it's missing, and what are the problems that are not solved that you would like to solve. So the problem is that looking for students with top students in their class, good pedigrees in a way that they come from top schools, from top grades, from top everything not always relates to research. Research, for me, it's related to curiosity. Many times, you don't need to be very intelligent, it's just that you're a person that asks questions. I say that I was in industry, and I wasn't a good fit for industry. Why? Because I always make like a joke, but that's the reality. When well, I had my construction company, when I would go to a construction site, and we had the project had to be on time, on budget, you had the whole schedule to build it. And I would arrive there and I would look at a wheelbarrow and I would start looking, why does this thing has one wheel, okay? And then I would be completely lost the interest in the construction at all. And I would be designing different wheelbarrows. And I would be trying different types. And I would be doing research on wheelbarrows. And everyone said, we don't have bricks. The project is behind Sky oh, go buy the bricks. Give me a break. My focus would be very in the idea of questioning how things work in the real majority of the projects people are not expected to question. They are expected to follow the, the schedule, follow the the plan and deliver it. And I say that when I was a kid, i never had a toy for more than one day i'd get the toy and i would disassemble it to see how it worked those cars that would have batteries and everything was 15 minutes that i would not have any fun pushing the buttons and and having the car moving i had the fun of looking how the motor installed and how it works and so uh, how can you get that from someone when they apply for the PhD, okay? You get them that they did very well. They learned static and they got 10 in the class. Did they question if the equation could be different, okay? Is there another other way? So again, for people that are thinking about doing PhD and research, you really have to be someone that likes to ask questions, likes to think, can we do this differently? Can I do this better? Is there another way? And not necessarily is the better way, but you have the question, you can conclude in the end that no, the way that they did before was better. No problem, you, you answered, you generated the knowledge because if you ask it a question and you prove it, no, there is no gain by doing so. Negating the hypothesis in a PhD, it's not a failure because the importance is related to the process, not to the delivery. So I think that this is very related to my philosophy of what a Ph.D. is. For me, the product of the Ph.D., it's not the thesis. The product of the Ph.D. is the student. I am transforming someone that has no clue how to do research in the top tier researcher. This is my objective. So what I want them is to learn how to do research and to be able to continue for the next 30, 40 years to do research and to have huge impact. So I tell many of my students that the outcome of the thesis, so students expect to change the world during their PhD, that it's going to solve a problem, that it's going to make the world a much better place. Yes, that's noble that's interesting but many times i tell my student that even if this doesn't happen if the student learns how to do research learns how to find a research topic put together research questions hypotheses a methodology to answer those questions how to validate the way that they answer these questions and if they understand how to do research they are going to graduate, they are going to cut the umbilical cord with me, they are going to be doing their research in research labs or as professors, and then they are going to repeat this process for the next 30, 40 years. So I can guarantee that all my students are going to change the world. doesn't need to be at the first try. So the PhD, it's their first try to be exposed to research. So this takes much more than just the topic itself, but again, my students tend to be family for life. It's a friendship, it's family, my wife, my kids, they all know my students. Uh, it's a long process, four, five, six years that we are working hours and hours together. has to be fun. has to be fun for me. I have to be learning. My objective with the students, as Maida said before, he is the expert in the topic, not me. I'm much more someone that it's advising, learning in the process with the students. So, uh, the fun of having PhD students that I'm always learning. And if I'm not learning, this is when the PhD research is failing. So uh, it's a personal journey for the professor and for the students. So that idea of traveling and doing those things together, yes, because we are partners during that time and, and partners for life.
1: We really appreciated Dr. Soibelman opening up and sharing his perspective on the PhD journey and the dynamics he has with his students. I know that when we finished up our recording, Dr. Soipelman and Dr. Chen went out and grabbed lunch as colleagues. The PhD process is long and very much about research, but it's also about building that network of peers in your field. The iLab group had this great balance of both. On the topic of research, we're going to shift gears a little here. Dr. Maida Chen dives into the PhD project on detecting features from images to construct virtual environments.
3: At the beginning of the PhD, I had to start to learn about computer science from scratch, but not from undergrad course, uh, starting with master's there, learning all the concepts and the techniques of machine learning, deep learning, all of that. And then start to actually apply it on the research that I'm doing. So my research is related to uh, 3D modeling of a terrain and putting this terrain, the 3D environment into the virtual environment for some simulation The main challenge there is try to extract all those features or objects from the terrain. Basically, when we want to interact with a 3D environment, the machine has to first understand what's going on in that environment. Is this a building? Is this a ground? Is this a tree? Then it can do some more interesting simulation on there. For example, if you want to blow up a building or put the same explosive on the ground, they should react differently. So the work I'm doing is trying to make this object or feature extraction process fully automated and what kind of approach that we should use with those modern sensors and techniques for the 3D reconstruction. So during that process, I learned a lot of techniques from deep learning and machine learning. But at the end, it's about how we can get all this process fully automated and getting the correct result from there. Sometimes there are a lot of changes. For example, I'm working on new sensors for the reconstruction It's different from the data that are publicly available. There are some limitations of the sensors so that data are more noisy. Uh, some of the existing approach does not work. So that's where I'm to contribute and where I start to think about how to improve the existing algorithms and networks to actually make it suitable for this data set that I'm currently working with. So that's the kind of challenges we are facing, but uh, it's good there are challenges. Imagine if there are not challenges, you will not have a research at the end, so.
2: So let me explain what he's doing for us in simpler words. His research was basically funded by the army. So their interest was first, let's create a scenario. Can you imagine that a soldier is going to go into a city uh, we are talking about urban warfare, that's very common wars that you have today. So the soldier has to go into the city and they find out that there is a sniper in the 10th floor in the building on your left. Okay, What the soldier wants to know is, how can I go from point A to B without being seen by that sniper? Okay. How can I hide behind existing buildings, existing trees, existing things that I can walk and I can reach there and that sniper won't be able to shoot me? So the idea is that the soldier would have in his backpack a small drone and would deploy that drone. The drone would fly and would create a 3D model of the environment. Okay? And we use intelligence and simulation and extracting that obviously that that is Glass, that's a window. You're not going to hide behind the window. Okay? So this is what Maida was talking about extract objects and windows, you don't hide behind windows. That is a concrete wall. You hide behind a concrete wall. So if automatically the computer could recognize those safe environments, they uh, would help the soldier to go from point A to B in a safe way. So all those things are extracting the object, recreating the 3D model from the sensor in this case that he was explaining. It's a camera in the drone. Acquiring pictures that you call RGB, red, green, and blue uh, pixels, okay? and you have pixel by pixel, with those you can recreate the 3D model and can use some intelligence to get the information how to go from point A to B. And there are many scenarios that they're working, as he said, for explosion, if you want to demolish a building. You want to know if it's concrete, it's brick, so so you have to simulate how it's going to happen. And they can even bring to virtual reality wherever you create that model that soldiers can add training environments for the soldiers to know when they're going to enter in a city that they don't know. You can have them entering virtual reality, look where the building that they want to extract the terrorist, where the building is, where the doors are, how you run to that building, how you recognize the building. They can train in the virtual world before they go to the real place. So all those things, they are looking into interaction of recreation of the 3D models, creation of those virtual worlds, adding intelligence. So there are many problems there and a lot of work to be done.
0: It's very interesting to learn about the idea of taking images that are 2D and you talk about how you use that to be able to identify whether something is glass or brick or concrete. What are like the features that you use to help determine that? I know you brought up like implementing these sensors, but what do they collect? for you to be able to like, distinguish, this is glass, you can't stand behind this, and to be able to know from an image that that's what that material is.
3: Yeah, from the beginning, starting with the sensor, we're using the drones and cameras on the drones to collect all the images. Uh, after we have all the images, we reconstruct the 3D model of the environment And then the process of identifying objects happened on the 3D environment instead of the 2D environment. There there are a lot of works doing 2D object recognition, classification, segmentation, but I'm more on the 3D side of this. And during my PhD, at the beginning of my PhD, it was 2014, where people are still using a lot of traditional machine learning algorithms, SVM, Random forest. But at that time, deep learning just started getting popular. So starting from 2014, I looked into all those traditional machine learning algorithms. I identified some features that could be helpful to identify the objects that you just mentioned. But um, those kind of approach are kind of, um, they are not generalizable enough. So as Dr. Sobjuman mentioned, um, when we go to a new city, if your model are not working in this environment, then you need to retrain the model, you need to fine tune the model, which is not visible in most of the cases. So we started to look into the more uh, state-of-the-art algorithms like uh, deep learning algorithms. All those features that you just mentioned in the deep learning models were not handcrafted or were not identified by the humans. Those features were actually extracted through the inside of the network. And it's just a black box. But uh, though we can always design the network and try to focus the network on some part of the object to identify some features there. But at the end, it's very hard to explain what those features are inside the network. And we will just see what the result looks like. Um, yeah, I guess that's the difference between the deep learning and machine learning at, uh, at that time, yeah.
0: So I think my surface level understanding of machine learning is that you feed the system data and it outputs results. And so there's, like you mentioned, no way to understand what's happening in this black box. And so how do you evaluate that output then?
3: Yeah, so I think it's not very accurate to say it's impossible to understand the feature. There are some ways to visualize the features of what the network is actually looking for. It's just sometimes it's not that easy to understand, but this is still a very hard research area that people are working on to try to understand what the network is actually doing. Um, but but
2: but one thing that it's important it's not that you enter the data and you get a result. You have a process before you, you. Everything machine learning you have the training and the use. Okay, so the training you are going to get millions of buildings with millions of windows, and you are going to tell. This is a window, this is a window, this is a window. You are going to show the computer so many times what it's a window that it's going to start recognizing what is the window, okay? And then when you present a new window, the computer basically say, oh, I already saw this 10 million times. That's a window, okay? So uh, you still have to do it a very manual process. That is the training that you have to go through. Several, in his case, uh, was how many undergrad students, uh, how many people had working for you in training? Yeah, today? it
3: was definitely more than 10 undergrad students, more than five master students worked on the project, helped me uh, annotating all the data. It was a huge effort to annotate the data at that time. And at the end, we have the largest data set that's currently publicly available. Publicly
2: available. So again, uh, when you think about features, for example, you are saying before not with deep learning but with other more traditional machine learning tools. Every time that you go with a photographic camera, you get information pixel by pixel. Okay, you think about the matrix that you have points, and each point it's going to have a value of red of green and a value of blue so, uh, so every color it's a mix of red green RGB red green and blue you have different intensities so you could use the color okay so those colors are concrete those colors are brick so you start recognize this pixel is brick this pixel obviously that you're not just using color there are a lot of different filters and things that can extract more information so you start mixing texture color and everything and you recognize that that pixel is concrete that pixel next to it is a brick so then you start separating what are pixels that are concrete and pixels that are brick and now you have that's the column that's the wall you separate the two objects And this is a brick wall, that's a concrete column. So this was more a traditional way of doing. And you do it by training by hand. You tell, this is concrete, this is concrete. And then until the computer starts extracting the color of the concrete, the texture of the concrete, and then recognize, okay, now I know that it's concrete. Deep learning has a better capability of defining the features that you uh, normally in the other machine learning tools you had to select. But there are a lot of interesting things in this area. And the beauty of all this is that what is civil, what's electrical, what's computer engineering, what's mechanical engineering, the world today, it's really... To solve those problems, really multidisciplinary, and you have to break those silos. So this is why my PhD students have to learn electrical engineering. They have to learn signal processing in electrical engineering. They have to learn computer science because by separating silos, okay, you think about a smart bridge that you have sensors that tell if the bridge it has a problem, it's going to collapse. Okay, so today you think that your car tells you if the tires are not at the right pressure, if the door it's not closed. So you have everything in your dashboard if you don't close well your door so you have real time information, temperature of your car if there is a problem, the check engine light turns on uh, so the car tells you if you should stop driving now or if you can keep driving if you should go to mechanic you get all this information from your car if you think about every bridge in California, they have less sensors than your car. Okay. Your car is smarter than all the bridges in California. So obvious that this technology should exist at bridges too, the bridge should have sensors that you tell, I have a crack, but this crack, I'm not going to collapse today. Uh, this is a, like a check engine light you don't have to stop but go to a mechanic so you could have different levels of alarm there's a crack it's getting bigger come here and 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 fix it or i have a big problem close the bridge for trucks above that weight so so the bridge should be that smart with information coming from the bridge who is going to develop those smart bridges electrical engineers know about the sensors how to acquire the data Computer scientists know how to crunch the data, to do the analytics and to predict if the bridge is behaving as it should or not. Civil engineers understand how the bridge, if you remove the civil engineer, the electrical engineer and the computer scientists would not know where to put the sensors. How many sensors in the bridge? Where should I put the sensors? What does it mean that the bridge has a problem? Okay? So again, none of those professionals are going to create that vision of smart buildings, smart infrastructure, smart bridges, recreation of 3D models like made. it working. Because we created those silos of expertise and they had to go outside those silos. So my job within the PhD is to work the interface of those silos. So my students can be civil engineers like Maida, but I, I can bring... If I's a civil engineer, I have to teach electrical, I have to teach computer science. If it's a computer scientist, they're going to have to learn civil engineering. doesn't matter because the problems that you are dealing with today are in that interface. And, and that's challenging and makes the first two years of every PhD student miserable because they think I studied, I know something, and now I'm stretching to another area, but exactly because my interest is in the interface of those silos.
0: Dr. Chen's work is so interesting. Virtual reality is really in, with VR goggles and games, but it's also great to hear that it has applications that will impact the lives of our military. To wrap up the conversation, Dr. Soberman and Dr. Chen shared their plans for the coming years.
3: So I guess uh, where I see myself in five years, I'm hoping I'm still in my current institute, but definitely promoted at that time. (laughs) I'm hoping to explore more different research topics. After the graduation, I started to collaborate with a lot of other people from the other universities, collaborating on some proposals there. And I'm hoping to expand my research topic and, you know, solving more or similar problems in the future. Yeah.
2: In the next five, ten years, I see myself graduating other brilliant guys like Maida. What I'm very excited now is a grant that I got now from NASA, building landing pads in the moon. It's a pretty interesting challenge, but it's something that I am really looking forward to. We have a very tight schedule. This is for the Artemis project and. Uh, nasa is planning to land the first Artemis rocket in the moon in the year 2028 so it's exactly in five six years so it's in your time frame from your question so yeah i'm looking forward to be part of allowing that journey to be a success they need to land those lunar landers in the moon and they have to prepare the lunar soil to allow that to happen. So we need to go first and to do a little bit of earth work. We're talking the earth, so moon work and prepare the landing pad and create a berm. And you are working very interesting solutions to solve that problem. My interest with that is that I believe you are talking a lot about robotics in construction. Construction, it's a very complex place. When you think about an assembly line for a car manufacturer, the car moves in an assembly line. And when you bring robots, you have a welding robot. You can cage that robot in a way that no human gets in that stage of this assembly line. So the car arrives there, the machine welds, and then the car moves to the next stage that can be a human doing something or can be another robot, but you have independence of work. Construction, it's the opposite. Construction, it's fixed not movable like an assembly line and you have the workers coming to work in that space so you have all these carpenters bricklayers plumbers and people coming and working in different faces at the same place but many times they work at the same place at the same time and you have a lot of clashes of interaction of those professionals so bringing robots in the middle of humans and moving robotic arms and hitting a carpenter that it's next to it. So it's still not really solved problem. And with the whole difficulties that you have of allowing the place to be clean for the robots to move without obstacles and everything. So I do think that the first step it's going to be, now we already have a lot of remote operated equipment, like demolition equipment that you can go remove the worker from the equipment. If things collapse during the demolition, you don't kill the worker. you damage the the demolition equipment. And the worker is operating by a joystick a controller from distance. The next step is to remove them from the construction site and having them working for teleoperation with the screens and camera and sound, but not being local. If you can do that, I do believe that we would solve one of the biggest problems today in construction, that it's finding labor. What happens is that construction workers are very specific type, it's a very heavy, so you have to be very strong to carry heavy things. You get hurt in your back by carrying, so you tend to retire early. So what if those people that are retiring you remove them from the construction site and they can work from a comfortable chair in a joystick and still operating so you keep that knowledge that today is retiring you keep them in the industry you can bring groups in the society that normally don't work in construction because it's too heavy but if you have the robot doing the heavy job you can bring women you can bring so again you increase the number of potential people to work to the industry So it's probably a solution for that. My interest with the work with NASA at the Moon is that if I can solve the teleoperation in the Moon of construction equipment there, with funding from NASA, translating that to the Earth reality, it's going to be easy. So I do think that everything that we learn by doing there is directly applicable here to our construction industry. And the obvious is that there it's much more difficult. So if you solve the more difficult problem, we would be able to apply it here. So I'm very excited with that. And I think that I'm going to be dedicating a lot of my next five years into that.
0: Thank you, Dr. Sobelman and Dr. Chen for sitting down with us to give us insight to your experiences and research. And thank you, our audience, both new and returning for listening. For those considering research, we hope it opened you to interdisciplinary work and gave you insight on applying. Tune in next time for a special episode of the podcast. Bye.